it's where most people are retiring, like age somewhere in that in that range. That's that's where the average of Congress is, and that's just crazy. It's very bizarre to me that somebody who is doing things that normal people do is suddenly not eligible to represent the people. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of Social Discord. I am your host, Daylin Turk. I'm Kara Tebow. And I'm Curtis Medina. Episode five, guys. How crazy is that? We're already moving along. Yeah. Let's it, go. We're, we're, we're becoming pros. I, you know, I we do our best. <laughs> so I before- got my, new, my new podcasting mic. <laughs> I, yeah, Curtis is on a new mic. I'm actually the only one in the studio right now. Kara had to take care of some stuff at her home, so she's also joining us remotely. But that's okay. I am using uh, 2015 Beats by Dre headphones. <laughs> I was not paid to say that. Does Beats really need any more promotions right now? <laughs> all right. Are all, are all Beats by Dre or is it just some Beats by Dre? Beats trademark copyright patent. By to be Dre. fair, by didn't Dre. didn't he sell them to? Didn't he sell Beats to like Sony or something? <laughs> You know, I, I'll have to dig back into the archives of 2014-2015 news and I'll get my answer for He you. literally, he sold Beats by Dre, I think, to Sony for like $3 billion. It was something absurd. All right. So today we're going to be talking about young people and politics, and hence the title, The Young and the Political, which I love. I think that's a great title. But before we go into the subject, since I said we are five episodes in, if y'all could do us a favor, I hope you've been listening along. Go ahead and go on Apple Podcasts. Go on, you can go on the website, podcastwithoutborders.com. You can also go on Spotify or whatever podcast app you may use. Write us a review, give us a rating, let us know what you think, let us know what we can improve on, let us know what you like. You know, it helps us grow as a show, really hone into what y'all enjoy and what we enjoy and what we do well. So if you could just write us a review, give us a rating, so that way we can help improve and just help grow as a podcast. Um, and that also helps us climb up the charts and uh, hopefully we'll get a sponsor in the future. Never know what happens. But with that being said, with the housekeeping done and over with, let's go ahead and head into today's topic, which is, as I said, young people and politics. So Curtis, I know obviously this show is shown through a millennial perspective and right now that is something that a lot of people argue is missing in today's political environment so why don't you take us into the topic and let us know uh, kind of what we're going to be talking about yeah for sure um so basically uh this topic started in my mind back in 2016 uh when trump won um i had a former uh teacher that is a friend of mine on facebook um, basically blame millennials. Uh, she said, you know, well, if you guys had come out and she vote. She said blame millennials? Yeah. Great. Yeah, no, I mean, she, yeah, I mean, that's basically what she said. And, you know, and, and you know, and I was kind of more of the, like, you know, your generation's the one who voted for Trump. But then she pointed out correctly, you know, your your generation didn't come out at all. <laughs> so, so it kind of goes back to that where, like, um, you know, I, I started thinking back then, you know, why – why is it that that you know older people are so passionate about voting? Is it something that that just happens when you hit a certain age with every generation? You know, when you have to start paying taxes more or whatever, you know, you get more involved. Or is it something actually in the DNA of 
of every generation, you know, that, that uh, maybe for baby boomers or, or for um, the greatest generation or silent generation, you know, there's something that, that when they were growing up, they felt like, like their vote mattered more. Um, if something needed changing, they, you know, they would rush into it more than maybe millennials um, do. So then the question became, why don't we, why don't millennials, uh, you know, why aren't we more a part of, of the political spectrum? And it's a complicated uh, subject, and that's what I think we should talk about today. You know, and it's it's funny we talk about the idea of, you know, politics is, you know, older people, middle-aged people, it's, you know, what they do. We see Congress and we just see all this gray hair everywhere. Um, but it's funny you think back to the revolution and, you know, the founding fathers were all pretty young you look They're at in their 30s 40s some of them like there was an article i was reading that basically said some of the founding fathers were founding teenagers right i mean you look at so the oldest uh so we're looking at this list and it's allthingsliberty.com and it has um and it's journal of the american revolution and it's ages of revolution how old were they on july 4th 1776 um and it's written by todd andrelick <laughs> Possibly. Uh, and so in the list, they have the very last person who is uh, Samuel Whitmore, who was 81. And then the second oldest was Benjamin Franklin, who at the time was 70 years old. But then you look at people, you know, I mean, the uh, vast majority of everyone else was so much younger. Oh, yeah. So the average age for our founding fathers was, I think, 44, if I'm correct. Correct. Um, yeah. And then you had people who didn't play a major role, but were participating in the revolution. For example, Andrew Jackson, who I believe was a courier at the time, was nine years old. Um, and so it's doing just, his part at nine years old. You know, and then you have Alexander <laughs> Hamilton at the time of the signing of the, um, I guess, Declaration of Independence, Constitution, uh, whatever that was, um, I guess, <laughs> Declaration of Independence, right? Um, yeah, I believe the declaration um, was 18 years old, which is wild. That's crazy. Wow. And he's an amazing rapper. I don't know if you guys saw that. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess that makes sense. I mean, and, he's 18. And most people don't know this, but he was Hispanic. Uh, <laughs> if, if, you, if you're not aware, we are referencing the intensely just award-winning Broadway show Hamilton as uh, created by Manuel Lin Manuel Miranda. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, so you know, a lot of these people, uh, you know, they were they were uh, teenagers essentially, and they were fighting for their life, fighting for their country, um, and and you know, it, it it kind of begs the question, like, you know, if, if there's anyone out there in their you know they're eighteen, they're in their twenties, they're their if they're elder millennial and they're in their thirties. You know, and you feel like you don't, you can't, um, you know, add to the debate or, or you know, join politics. Like it's a great way to, to then get motivated. Look, look back at, at some of these, some of these great people, and uh, and realize that no, you know, they didn't have white hair like you saw, you know, in all the portraits of them when they were actually doing the most important parts of of founding the country. I mean, I think about it this way: we have you know, arguments in the U S Supreme court about constitutional issues. We're arguing about things or talking about things or upholding things that were written by 18 year olds when they're founding our country. Like mm -hmm. they're pretty important people. Yeah. Well, and it's funny too, because they, 
the the picture that everybody sees of George Washington, he's kind of got, you know, he's a little bit stern. He's got his upper lip up and, you know, he's just like really noble. He's got, you know, kind of his cheeks are starting to sag a little bit. But that was in 1797. That was that's, the end of his career. Right. But that's what yeah. everybody sees of George mm-hmm. Washington. And so you look at the picture of him from or picture painting of, <laughs> him, of him from 1776 and like he was a young guy and you know it's similar it's similar to you see you know people and they had brown hair but they were you know powdered white if they weren't already wearing wigs you know so it's i don't know if it's i guess i don't know the culture of the powdered wig thing i don't know if that's like to make it that people look more noble i don't know but then i also it was I, to look more noble and older Kara, do you they know? Yeah. To look older. I think it was a trans, uh, a tradition carried over from uh, the UK Parliament. Right. That okay, that makes sense. Respect, I believe. I literally could have just lied to you, but I'm pretty sure that's. that's <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. I mean, if it, actually even modern day in the in the UK they wear white. Right. It's, it's essentially yeah. a uniform. And so yeah. I I do wonder too if they just I don't know what like the. Um, like mortality rate. I don't know what that, like the average age of, you know, someone's death at that time was, but I wonder what that played in the role of younger people, you know, holding power. Um, I yeah. I, I mean, you didn't have time to wait. They were living on dog gears back then, basically. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, <laughs> You know, the whole the whole thing with like how we've set different ages for different um, offices that you can hold, like the the fact that like you can't be a, the president until you're 35, like like that was that was like you know that was old age basically back mm-hmm. then. You know, you that, yeah. it was assumed you had quite a bit of experience, and you know you were lucky if you lived another 20 years after that. And so I'm trying. I'm looking up. Um, I had a list, but I can't remember. So running for the uh like running ages i know obviously president is um 35 35. running for congress uh is or no running for senate i believe is 30 i thought i had this somewhere i'm sorry yeah i i have it up here hold on one second it's this is the one that let's see um okay here it is Um, So, yeah, what are the ages for running for office in the United States? um, Let's see. So the Senate is 30 and the House is 25. And actually, before I started looking this up, like I I actually didn't know that there was any age restriction on Congress. I knew that I knew about the one for for the president. I, I had no idea. So, I mean, you know. I don't, I mean, I think the idea is that, you know, you want to have at least a little bit of experience by the time you do it. So I think it's kind of meant to be a protection, but, you know, but what we have is, is a lot of people who might be really good at, at politics and they want to get into it or whatever. Like they're basically forbidden from really taking it seriously until, until they're, you know, in their early, uh, sorry, mid twenties or early thirties. Um, and you know, that's, it's kind of a shame because, uh, by the time they're really good at it, you know, they're almost aged out. And that's kind of, I think, what, what we're, what we're running against with, with, uh, with Congress right now. You know, I think what the average age of Congress, what was it again? It was like 67 or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's up there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I mean, it's, it's where most people are retiring 
like age somewhere in that in that range that's that's where the average of congress is and that's just crazy <laughs> you know we don't we don't get we don't have an equal representation of different generations so you know i think there's a feeling of uh from uh, uh you know people under 40 that there's a disconnect of between what is actually um you know what you want your country to look like and how you want your country to run and how how the country is being run because one generation is running the government and yet, you know, 30 something percent of, of the country are millennials or younger. Kara, what are your thoughts on that, you know, disproportion between the average age of Congress and, you know, the actual population of the country? Yeah, I think I think about this question all the time because I know growing up, I heard a lot, well, politicians need to be older because they've lived more life. And so that was kind of instilled in me of, well, you need to live more life to know what you're doing. But then I see people like AOC or I see people my generation just getting really involved with canvassing and a lot of my friends were working for campaigns. And I'm like so excited. I'm like eh, – these people are so excited and they're so passionate. So why shouldn't they have a say? I mean, we're affected by a lot of policies that go on right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, why shouldn't we have a dog in the fight? Absolutely. And I mean, and, and, you know, I think that that same argument goes for a lot of different um, types of people, you know, we, uh, you know, whether you're a person of color, whether you're a woman, um, whether you're gay, um, you know, all, all, all kinds of different, you know, whether you're Latino, Asian, like, you know, the, the demographics of who is in office does not at all match the demographics of the country. Now, you know, of course, you don't necessarily have to, your representative doesn't have to necessarily be of your race or sexuality or sex uh, to, you know, to, to, to do a good job to represent you, you know, but at the same time, like, shouldn't there be some kind of more equal representation um, of people and wouldn't that essentially fix the, the the problem in Congress? And I will say, I think younger voters are becoming more aware of the fact that it all starts on a local level. You're so frustrated sometimes with people you see in the Senate or people in Congress. You're like, why are these people making decisions for me? Then it's like, well, you got to turn out. Like your city council becomes your mayors, your mayors become your, you know, your Congress men and women and your senators. And so I think they're starting to be, I hope they're starting to be kind of recognition of that. And like, oh yeah, I got to turn out for these local elections because mm -hmm. they're going to represent me later. Because you can't complain if you're not going to go to the ballot box, in my opinion. And so that's one great way for for young people to get involved. And so one, so aside from the voting aspect, the actual, you know, running aspect. So I want to, uh, we have this pewresearch.org. It's, uh, uh, they have this article, it's who runs for office, a profile of the 2%. Um, and basically the 2% comes from the stat that 2% of Americans say they have ever run for office. And um, they have some percentages here. Um, so one pointing at women, uh, women who serve in office continue to be underrepresented at all levels which is just absolutely true. Um, it goes in pretty much every professional environment, which is just terrible. Um, but 20% of U.S. senators are women, um, as are 80% of the House. At the state level, only 10% of governors and 24%—10% uh, are governors and 24% of state legislators are women. Um, and then we look at the balance of, um, you know— white people versus Hispanic, um, 
well, where is it? Uh, the similar balance race. Um, so non-Hispanic whites make up 66% of American adults. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau, um, the uh, 2012 American Community Survey, 82% of those who say they ever ran for office were white. And so it's, was a staggering it's just so dominant. And, you know, for contrast, non-Hispanic blacks uh, made up 12% of the adult population, but only 5% of office seekers. And similarly, 15% of U.S. adults are Hispanic, while only 6% of the adults who ever run for office are Hispanic. Um, so basically what that means is that, you know, only 2% of the overall population have ever run for office. So so already it's a, a embarrassingly low number of people who are involved in politics or even try to be involved in politics. And of those, like you said, like a crazy number of people are of one demographic of one socioeconomic range, you know, uh, and the others just don't seem to be, uh, they don't seem to make the connection between what running for office could do uh, for them as a reward, mm -hmm. meaning like helping the community, helping, you know, people like them, that there's, there's a huge disconnect there. And you, and you look at the specifically the millennial population, it's the most diverse generation the country's ever seen. And so I wonder if, because so right now, um, and this is from, oh, where is it? Uh, this is a Q&A on, uh, from the Intelligencer. Um, it was a Q&A with the author of, uh, she wrote, the ones who we've, the ones we've been waiting for. It's Charlotte Alter. She's a writer and journalist. And she pointed out that, Basically, you have, you know, the uh, silent generation, which is anyone born from, I believe it's like 1927 to 1945. You have baby boomers, 1945 to 65. And then you have Gen X, which is 65 through 80. And then millennials are 80 through 96. And then 97 to like 2003 or whatever is Gen Z. And you have, you know... You know, when you have the average age of Congress at 67, you have all these people who are who had lived these lives, lived in this world that millennials never experienced. And if you pay attention to politics, so many of the people that hold office try and to try to create laws that keep the world that they have lived in. And yeah. Status quo is a huge thing in pretty much both parties. Um, a little bit, it's a little bit more, I think, like ingrained into the into the Republican Party about either keeping a status quo or going back to a time that was better. Yes. But both parties essentially do it at this point, and that's why you know Biden isn't all that exciting mm -hmm. as a candidate. Well, and it's because you know ever since the the you know the infamous switch of Democrat you know and Republican and the I guess when did they switch like in the early 19 or early would have been like 1900s, civil, civil, rights civil rights area and you know they switched yeah. and that's when you know democrats became just progressive like let's move forward let's you know moral change is a necessity for a functioning and progressive society um whereas republicans were like let's not change much you know let's not have the government interfere with you know our lives they want they wanted less government and they wanted more protection for business owners and at that yep. time business owners were all white so guess what they were against you know equality in a lot of in a lot of states not all of them 
but but definitely you know cer certainly in the south and uh and it wasn't always necessarily that because they were racist a lot of it was um you know even if they weren't necessarily racist they a lot of it was that they wanted to preserve their their line or whatever their you know their um socioeconomic um place I think, unfortunately, over time as well, those ideals created a lot of systemic barriers for you know, people who weren't straight white men to join politics um, and a lot of internalized things. I, I say that primarily as a woman in general. You, you When you walk into a, a boardroom you know, as a woman, you kind of make sure you're toning down what you're saying. You soften your opinions on things and you think, oh, well, you know, I, no one's going to really take me seriously as a woman. Very often they're going to take men more seriously. And so I think women going into politics feel that way. Maybe young people going into politics feel that way. Um, and then we've just done a lot as a society to make it very, uh, very uncomfortable to see anybody but straight white men running for politics. And Hillary Clinton, actually, she, in her book, uh, what happened? She released it in 2017, I believe. She said, it's not customary to have women lead or even to engage in the rough and tumble of politics. It's not normal, not yet. So when it happens, it often doesn't feel quite right. That may sound vague, but it's potent. People cast their votes based on feelings like that all the time. And I think that's that's such a great point because whenever we see someone, maybe it's a, a Muslim woman or you know someone who's 24 running for some type of political seat, it doesn't, it doesn't feel quite right to us because we're not used to it. And I bet that has a lot of influence. That's true. And then, and then at the same time, we complain um, when, you know, come election, actually, when we're not past the primary, we're actually electing someone that everyone's alike, you know, that, you know, Biden is so similar to Trump in so many ways or whatever, you know, or that Hillary Clinton was so similar to Trump in so many ways, things like yeah. that. We complain, you know, when we, when we elect people who are, um, you know, basically carbon copies of each other. And yet, we're the reason that that's happening because we're unsure about voting for somebody who has a name that's different than ours or voting for a woman. Yeah. Versus yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think we have to reconcile about the fact that there's a lot of internal biases that we don't realize we have yet. And that's probably getting in the way of a lot of um, progressive politics. And so coming off of those biases um, when, so AOC was the youngest person ever to go into Congress at 28 years old, right at the time. And so infamously, there was a video that came out of her on like a rooftop dancing with her friends and the GOP just went off saying that, you know, she wasn't fit for Congress. Look at, you know, this young person out here just, you know, dancing and having fun, not being serious. Kara, what are your thoughts on those critiques? You know, how how do you, how does that affect younger generations who are, you know, we still have social lives. We still have friends. We're allowed to have friends. We're allowed to have social lives, yet we're not taken seriously because of it. And I guarantee you, you know, you look at some of those older generations in Congress, uh -huh. I think they were probably doing some of those things when they're, you know, 45 <laughs> years old. That is exactly what I think. I think, <laughs> first of all, the double standard, because when it's a, a, woman, a young woman of color dancing, she's unruly and unfit. But when it's, you know, a white male George Bush doing cocaine or, you know, whatever you're doing, then it's just, it's like, oh, boys will be boys. It's boys, boys will be club. boys. Yeah. It's like, so is there, is there a window then that you have to stop doing what's quote unquote deemed unfit un, uh, for a politician? I think there's a lot of double standards. Um, 
And I, it's very bizarre to me that somebody who is doing things that normal people do is suddenly not eligible to represent the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially, I mean, in a, in a climate where, you know, it's okay for the president to be divorced all these times to, you know, be a womanizer. Like I, I, at this point, you know, all of this like prejudgment of morality, like in order to, to, for somebody to even could be considered to run for office or whatever, I think is pretty much out the window. If it ever, I mean, you know, it's not that it doesn't matter. I'm just saying like, it's a huge double standard. Um, you know, the, the other thing too is, is like, I'm a big believer in, in, you know, you should be respectful for people who are, you say are in Senate or, you know, or president or something, of course, because it's a hard job. At the same time, like, I don't think we should, we should treat these people like celebrities. And, I, and that's what we tend to oh, do. Oh, absolutely. A lot. You know, um, the problem is that, you know, we probably shouldn't have people that are politicians their entire life. You know, we, we should remember that, that, uh, that they're public servants first, you know, mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, they're, they're, they have a job to do for a, what, you know, what, some period of time, and then they have real lives, you know, so, so our ex expectations have to adjust to, you know, to probably the, the reality that it's so expensive and time consuming to run for any kind of office that, you know, that we shouldn't expect these people to be perfect angels, uh, you know, and, and never go out and party or whatever, you know, and not never go out and have real lives. Um, we should remember they're real people. I mean, 100%. look look at Obama when you know he was in college. Like he's he's known for having you know partaken in the deviled lettuce when he was in school, <laughs> and that that's okay. Like I, you know, it, it it is what it is. It was college, but I don't know. It's it's really interesting because um, that the the obsession with political figures, you know, moral compass and their personal lives is is a very American thing. Um, in, in France, for example, they don't care what you do. It, they just care what you're doing when you're in the office. They, French people right. found it very, very bizarre that we all cared so much about Bill Clinton's affairs. They were like, why do you care? Like, what, what does it have anything to do with the actual work he's doing in the office? Yeah. If it's not um, costing jobs, like what, what does it have to do with anything? Right. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very American thing. So why can't we just judge them on what bills they're passing or or their voting record? Why why I don't get judged for my personal life at work. You know what I mean? Well, okay. and you can and so we say that about AOC. We say that out of Obama, but someone who supports someone, for example, like Brett Kavanaugh, they're gonna you know. We've seen it the <sighs> argument by Republicans saying, well, <laughs> why does it why does it matter? You know what happened at a party you know, 40 years ago when he was in high school. Right. And well, so it's, it's not that it never matters. It's just that it can't matter more than it were the average person, you know, like, right. like in other words, like, like with, with, uh, with Brett Kavanaugh, he was being accused of rape, correct? Um, this, not rape, sexual misconduct. I think he, like, right. yeah, I'm not sure. Well, I guess did. it depends how she felt about it. Yeah. I guess that's right. true. So, so, I mean, that's, that's not okay. Sexual anybody, assault, anyway. we'll say. You know, yeah. so, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, don't, I don't want to get it confused with like defend, you know, say I'm not, I am not doing the like boys can be boys kind of thing. I'm not doing that at all, you know, but I, I'm just saying that like, uh, you know, a, a normal, a normal healthy young life shouldn't be criticized, you know, but yes, we should criticize somebody who is accused of, you know, a, a gross misconduct yeah. and is yeah. trying to run for a major office, you know, that that's not protected <laughs> under a personal life. I'm sorry. And I guess to be fair. <laughs> Um, you know, Supreme Court, you're not 
you know, running for election, you're appointed by the president. So it's not the perfect example of election, but it is a good sure. example of the scrutiny that, you know, we're talking about. But but Congress has to approve it and yes. we vote for Congress. So so the, the check and balance on that is supposed to be like if 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 they screw up and they put in a, a Supreme Court justice that is completely unfit for that job, we are supposed to vote out that Congress person that voted that for, for that. You know, so that's kind of the check and balance. And real quick about going back to France and somebody mentioned that, like about how, you know, they perceive us as being kind of like, you know, kind of stuffy, I guess, and kind of like caring about the wrong thing. Guess what? Guess what the age of uh, that you have to be to be elected to the lower house of parliament in uh, in France is. Um, oh, tell I'm going to say 18. It's 18. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 18 years old and uh and it was it was mostly that across the board i think it was 24 years for the senate and then oh this is really funny the minimum age for the president of france you guys want to give a guess of this 28 18 okay there there has to be someone somebody get a book on this there has to be something aligning with that that we care so much about who someone is and what they've experienced in life and we don't give enough of Hey, what can you bring to the table and what do you want to, what's your voting record? This just makes me think of Parks and Rec when Ben Wyatt became the mayor of his town at (laughs) 18 and he created Ice Town and has like completely burned the town's budget and it haunts it for the rest of his life. You see, there's literally a storyline about that in our American comedy. Like, we are so obsessed with the fact that young people are irresponsible politicians. But, and Curtis mentioned this before, um, you know, we were debating the idea of, you know, lowering the ages of voting, lower the ages of, you know, when you can run for office. And I think you can run for like most local offices at the age of 18. State offices. State offices. Um, Well, I think um, like state legislators, you have to be, um, I think, at least 21. um, And so, but anyways, Mm -hmm. but it, it makes you wonder if if the option is there and the opportunity is there, will it create more incentive or even though you know we're not, maybe we're probably not going to elect an 18-year-old you know state legislator, will it create the incentive that you know maybe younger people need to get more involved with politics? Because I mean it's it's hard to get past the stigma that you know when all you see is Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi at you know like 77 and 80 years old that young people can get involved. I want to talk about something really quickly that is a massive barrier. Um, Curtis, you mentioned a little bit ago, you said it's very expensive, you know, kind of to get into mm. politics. And Absolutely. That is a huge barrier. There was uh, one of the first Latina Texas Congresswoman. Her name is Veronica Escobar. Um, she talked about this a lot. She was basically said that, you know, there was a great article in political Politico called Woman Who Rule Congress. And she basically said when she got into this, her biggest fear was her inability to raise money because everyone from D.C. was saying, can you get the money? Can you get the money? And she was like, uh, I don't know. And they were like, well, you need to get people, you know, five grand here, two grand here. And she was like, I don't know anybody that can donate more than like $20. Like that's yeah. not, she was like, that's not my circle of people, especially as, you know, a, a woman of color. And so that's a huge barrier for young people. It's like, can you get, do you guys know anyone off the top of your head that could be like, here's your, you know, here's your check for 10 grand, go start printing those lawn signs. Right. Um, you have to have money to get into politics. And I, I wonder if it's like that everywhere else. You know, I don't know the answer. It's interesting. You know, you say, oh, well, you know, a bunch of people give me $20. And then you look at the contrast of that at, you know, Bernie Sanders, who had the most, you know, donations of 
like $20 or less, but unfortunately the most donations ever. Yeah. Unfortunately, like nobody has the clout and the outreach that he does. I mean, to that's be fair, he created it though. That is, mean, and that's true. Know, and he, he and created he, a social revolution. He built it he did, on. But he didn't, I don't like that narrative of like, yeah, his grass was started with $20 here and there. Like he, Bernie Sanders is still like a very wealthy person and, and yeah. he started from that platform. It's like the, my parents gave me a, a loan thing, oh, you know, it's, and um, it was an incredible how, movement. That um, who was it? it was. Um, Kylie Jenner was the first self-made, you're the youngest self-made billionaire. <laughs> oh, just to answer your and question then, before, yeah. as far as like um, some, uh, how old it, like you said, you know, they probably wouldn't get elected at 18 or whatever. Right. Um, it's, I'm not sure if you say it like Sarah or Sa- Sarah uh, Blair, um, she said the story is about how she became a media sensation in November 2014 after the 18-year-old Republican won a seat in the West Virginia House of Delegates. The college freshman at West Virginia University was interviewed by outlets ranging from Washington Post and Times Magazine to hmm. Teen Vogue. <laughs> Teen Vogue. <laughs> so it has happened and it could happen. Curtis, I want to ask you a question. Um, so in some of my readings, um, and I can't, I'm, I'm spacing on what article it was. Um, and I actually, I think it is, um, this one, it's, uh, the liberal millennial revolution and they talk about, and it's from the Atlantic and they talk about the idea that millennials and younger people basically get involved in politics through issues. They don't get involved to be part of politics. Like it's not the idea that, Oh, I want to be a Senator because I want to be a Senator. It's, Oh, I want to be a Senator or I want to vote or I want to protest for this issue. And then as soon as, you know, for example, as soon as Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race, who is such an intensely issue driven uh, candidate, a lot of millennials lost interest. So what are you, what are your thoughts on, you know, issue driven candidacy, you know, by millennials? Yeah. I, I, um, I was a supporter of Bernie Sanders and that's exactly what happened when he dropped out of the race. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still going to vote and I still care. I still don't want Donald Trump to continue. Uh, but at the same time, like it's no longer about the issues anymore. It's about, you know, they've made, it's going to be about Donald Trump. It's going to be about, you know, a couple of really wide, maybe, you know, I don't know, basically party politics again. We're going right back mm-hmm. to that, you know. Um, and and that really doesn't interest me because I'm not a big fan of Democrats or Republicans at this point. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I don't really care who's in office as long as they are representing the issues that I, I care about. And I think that that's a, a, a really uh, good explanation of why a lot of uh, millennials are starting to get into politics, are starting to care, but it's a real blow when uh when when the 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 people that were pushing the most interesting ideas couldn't get past you know into the final round um and and if i was to run for um for politics um, i would definitely be running on an issue rather than just being like i want to be a democrat or i want to be a republican like you know i would run on something that matters to me you know uh say like closing privatized prisons things like that you know, so, you know, stuff that really matters. Uh, Taking a stance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there, you know, so, I mean, there are, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of things that, um, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons that, that keep you motivated after, um, after it gets difficult, you know, when you're running, if you, if you don't have a, a really passionate, 
um, subject that you're fighting for, then I'm not really sure why you would continue. And the people who would continue without a really passionate subject um, are not the people you want, you know, representing you. Um, there was a Democrat in in um, in Montana that was running a few years ago, and I met I, I met I met him at it was at a like a like a benefit thing. It was really small. And and I and I got a chance to talk to him. I asked him about I asked him what his issues were, and he listed a couple things kind of offhandedly. And then I asked him about a few other things. He gave me some really lame answers, and I realized I was like, not only is this guy not going to win, but he doesn't deserve to win. You know, he he doesn't he doesn't really care. I don't know why he's running, and and that's super like you know <sighs> devastating to somebody who cares about politics and and was really hoping that that he would be of the stance to, to take charge. This is just a <laughs> mark for me right now. There's a, from the Atlantic, there's a video um, and it's uh, the guy who wrote the article um, talking with somebody. Um, oh, Kara, are you back? I did not like that. <laughs> Kara accidentally left us for a moment. Um, but I'm just going to, I'm out. just going to uh, edit um, this video in because it's a, a nice little interview. It's why do millennials love Bernie? And they go into um, just a little bit of the idea of why millennials would run, and if they're not running, why you know why is it that Bernie attracts them to vote? We're hearing a lot about this whole idea that uh, Bernie Sanders is really energizing and great for specifically millennials, uh, and they're on the brink of a radical revolution. So. I kind of want you to fact check that for me. This generation of young people uh, is absolutely more liberal than the rest of the country and than previous generations of young people. Both in terms of social policy, they tend to be the left to the left of the country, and in terms of economics. And this is a generation that like really came of age at a time when it was difficult to make money. They graduated with high student debt, didn't make a lot of money after they graduated from college. They could even find a job. What's the prevailing theory to explain this kind of sentiment in millennials? One interesting political theory that might explain why this group is really, really behind Bernie is this idea of the revolution of rising expectations. That expectations for this group have accelerated faster than reality has caught up. And so you think about, this is the group that said, I'm going to college so that I can get a great paying job. And a lot of them haven't been able to find a job, and if they have, maybe it's been at a really low wage. It's a group that got really excited about Barack Obama in 2007 and 2008, when he promised to sort of unite the country around his vision of politics, and that clearly hasn't come to fruition. So I think that you have not necessarily a lot of discrimination, but a lot of disappointment among Bernie Sanders' core group of, support, of supporters. Um, and it's that disappointment that's sort of motivating them. So there's also kind of this parallel here compared to Obama in 2008, where we had young voters who were really excited about this potential for change around a candidate. So what's, what's tell me more about like the parallel of Obama and Bernie, and like what happens if Bernie wins? So it does seem possible that Bernie Sanders just walks down the path that Barack Obama already trailblazed, which is a liberal that young people love being stymied at every turn in Washington and creating more resentment about the system being broken. That does seem to me to be a possible future if Bernie Sanders becomes president. What if Bernie Sanders doesn't win the nomination? Uh, do we think that millennial voters are going to gravitate toward Hillary Clinton, or what's 
what do you think is going to happen? I think you're going to have some people who are never going to vote for Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, and so they'll vote for Hillary Clinton if they go to the polls in November. But they also might just not go to the polls. It's possible that the only person keeping them in this entire presidential election is Bernie Sanders. And so once he leaves, they'll just fade away. And so I do think that Hillary has a turnout problem, an excitement problem among young people, particularly when she's being beat like four to one by Bernie Sanders in these early primaries, the early caucus. So yes, some, but not all. I mean, you know, I think that a big part of it was like, like a lot of people, a lot of Democrats um, complained that that his his biggest negative was that he wasn't a true Democrat. And I used to say that's his best attribute, not his worst, you know, that he aligns with a lot of Democratic ideas, but he also, you know, doesn't just vote along party lines and mm -hmm. that, you know, he could actually work with with, you know, merging our country, you know, back together and, and all that. So. Well, and it's interesting. So the millennial generation is by far, by far, you know, a liberal generation. Um, but it's also, I think, one of the most nonpartisan. Like, I don't, mm -hmm. I think if you talk to most millennials, they aren't going to say that they're, you know, Democrat or Republican. And they may say, you know, more so independent or, you know, maybe something different. Well, like a friend of mine says that he leans Republican, you know, but but his version of Republican is is a lot is a lot softer and uh, toward some of the more rigid issues that Republicans, older Republicans, tend to really fight for, like say marijuana, <laughs> you know, legalization or something like that. You know, like you know, most young Republicans I've talked to, you know, they they might want they might want lower taxes or something, but. They, but they don't they don't give a crap whether or not, you know, people are smoking a, a, a plant. <laughs> Do you guys remember that? Uh, did you hear that line from every business kid in school? And it was like, well, I'm I'm socially liberal, but fiscally conservative. Oh, my God. Yes. Like every college kid ever. Yeah. I, literally, every, that's everyone's way of trying to say, well, I'm not a Republican, but. Yeah. <laughs> Right. But well, and, my mommy and daddy want lower taxes. Right. <laughs> but but you know, one of the things I was surprised about was that like how how few colleges feed into the majority of people who end up running for office, especially mm -hmm. president and like the really high offices. You know, it's it's sort of it, it's become kind of a it's almost like a family business for a lot of a lot of these of these people that oh, you know their grandfather was con a congressman, so they want to do it, and mm -hmm. that's great. It, it, like I don't want to like discourage that because you, of course you should look up to your family, but at the same time, like you know, it, I'm worried that that the lack of variety, lack of people who even who even will would think about trying to run for something, um, is is maybe that's the reason it's so small is because you know we don't we don't include this in your average college or even your average like high school about this idea of like. You don't like something, get involved. Or you like something, you want to keep going, get involved. You know, my my biggest goal with this episode is that somebody is listening out there that and they're gonna they're they're on the verge of running for something and they're gonna hear this and they're gonna be like, you know what, I should run. There's no reason I shouldn't, you know, and then to push them over the top. You know, I and I I wonder if the the negativity that so many Americans have against politicians and the idea that you know politicians are corrupt and they're you know not good people and they don't do anything i wonder if there's this kind of like 
counterculture, you know, thing happening where young people don't want to become the issue. Um, sure. I, you know, it's a possibility. Um, I mean, they, politicians are under, under a huge amount of scrutiny. So every time you see, you know, an article about AOC dancing on the top of a rooftop, you're like, do I want an article about me? You know, like, you know, dancing with my friends or whatever. I mean, it's, it's all meant to discourage mm -hmm. people from even trying. But you know, what's interesting too is the millennials, I would argue, are also the creators and founders of cancel culture. Like we hold oh, people accountable like no tomorrow. So it's like, I mean, our, our generation is obsessed with holding people accountable. And for the most part, that's a really good thing. Sometimes I think it can go a little far in my opinion. Oh, yeah. um, but There's a difference yeah. between holding someone accountable and internet shaming. Though. Well, and it's yeah. it's the whole idea of like, okay, like th what you did was wrong. What you did was in bad light. We need to hold you accountable for it. There's a difference between that and, oh, we don't like that. Therefore, we're going to cancel you. Yeah. yeah. Or so we, don't, I, we don't even know enough about what was going on yeah. in the moment. And there's just. We're going to look at a meme and we're going to make a two second decision yes. that your life should be ruined. That line has it's become so problem. blurred. I, and so I really wonder how that's going to translate at all to politics moving forward with our generation because I feel like we do hold people accountable quite a lot, which means we also need to hold ourselves accountable, right? You know, sure. and it's it's interesting Absolutely. in that the same, in that Q&A uh, with Charlotte uh, Alters, I think it was, Charlotte Alter, um, she um, talked with a lot of millennial Republicans, as I was saying, which has changed, which is drastically different from you know, older Republicans. Um, and they're, when it comes especially to issues like marijuana, same-sex marriage, immigration, they're really not that far off from their Democratic counterparts um, in terms of things like, you know, um, I guess a big one that they're still very divided on is abortion. That's a huge one that still is just split down the middle. But in her conversation with some of these millennial Republicans, she did find that many of them were very quiet about their support for Trump and didn't even mention Trump in many of their speeches because they said, you know, it's it's kind of this subconscious recognition that possibly in 10 years when they're running for higher office, and I don't know if it's maybe that part, the part of them that ignores the the negative side of Trump recognize that hey in 10 years this could come back to bite me yeah um and so it's interesting to you know see that and i don't even know if you would call it awareness I, I guess i don't know yeah i mean it's probably more like um paranoia um because you mm -hmm. know like for like recently um the chinese government has been uh trying to basically take control of hong kong and hong kong was this democracy um, in the middle of a communist country and it was given by the UK and with the, um, you know, understanding that they could basically be on their own and kind of like run it how they, how they did under the UK, um, um, leadership. And in the last about year, there's been just horrendous stories of, of, of them, uh, suppressing anybody that's fighting against the communist powers in, in Hong Kong. And one of the stories, the scariest stories probably that I read was that the government was using Facebook posts to basically charge people with crimes against the government and that, and that people who were fighting back against it 
um, were mad racing to delete everything that they wrote on Facebook <laughs> so that they wouldn't be taken by this, you know? So, so I think there's kind of a, a lesser fear in the U S that, I mean, hopefully lesser that, uh, you know, that at, at the very least, uh, post that you wrote, you know, when you were 18 or something is going to come back, come back and bite you, you know, when, when you're 60 and, and because of our cancel culture, uh, we're not going to have any context as to what you were talking about. Isn't it interesting though? I mean, our parents were not raised hearing the message, be careful what you put online, be careful what we put online, be careful your employers are going to see it. This is going to get you in the future. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I was raised hearing that over and over. My mom still thinks that private Facebook messages are like on your feed. I'm like, mom, nobody can see what I private message someone. So it will be really interesting to see um, how kind of having an online history and persona uh, shapes politicians and politics going forward. Are we going to care more or less? You know what I mean? Are we going to care less because everyone's dirty, you know, laundry is out there or are we going to use it to hold people accountable more? Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting. And so well, the, real quick, the back to yeah. the back to the future, the guy who wrote back to the future, he had a really great article that he released um, that was basically trying to predict the next 30 years. This was back in, I think 2015 um, because the joke was that the movie Back to the Future uh, predicted quite a few of things that actually ended up happening. So they asked him, go ahead and predict what's going to happen in the next 30 years. The best thing that he said in the whole article was he said that because of the Internet, he hoped that there would be that, that people would be feel less shame for write, for for writing and being who they are. Um, but but they would probably be less open. Yeah, and that's fair. All right, guys. So that is it on time um, for our first part on the young and the political. Uh, tune in for part two. We're going to have uh, actually he's one year less than a millennial, but nonetheless, he's a great example of what we're talking about. His name is uh, Daniel Carlino. Um, he ran for a uh, local office in Missoula, Montana. And uh, he's going to be on to discuss his experience, discuss his perspective on uh, young people running for office. Um, but if you want to get a hold of us, shoot us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com. Check out the website at podcastwithoutborders.com. Uh, Curtis, Carey, y'all have anything to plug at the end of this episode? Yes. Vote. Go vote in your local elections. Go read about the people that you're going to vote for. I don't care if it's in line. I don't care if it's three bullets that, you know, the local newspaper puts out. Go vote, okay? Yeah, definitely. The The more boring the election, the more you should vote. That's my, that, that's my like motto. Oh, you know, that's a good point. <laughs> because you know what? Less people are going to vote against whatever you're voting for and your, your vote's going to matter more. So, you know, I don't care city. It's going to be just the, the, you know, city election or whatever you go out and vote. You vote like it was, it was presidential. Pay go attention. Vote like it's your, your constitutional right and your duty. Cause it is your civic <laughs> duty. Well, and we'll get into this. Okay. No, we'll get into this into part two of this episode. So um, yeah, I guess tune in. Thanks y'all. Thank you for listening to Social Discord, part of the Podcast Without Borders Network. You can get a hold of us by sending us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com. You can also check out our website at podcastwithoutborders.com. Thanks for listening.